Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of August 5th, 2023. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Which means by the time you are listening to this, it will be mere hours from August 6th, marking 78 years since the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. And this 78th anniversary comes at a time when the risk of nuclear war is higher than it's ever been in my adult life. On July 30th, this past Monday, Deputy Chairman of Russia's Security Council, Dmitry Medvedev, said on Russian state media in reference to the counteroffensive in Ukraine, quote, Imagine if the offensive, which is backed by NATO, was a success and they tore off a part of our land, then we would be forced to use a nuclear weapon, according to the rules of a decree from the president of Russia. End quote. The critical thing here is what Medvedev means by our land, given illegal Russian annexation of Crimea and the Donbass, Medvedev is explicitly saying, if you think about it, that there could be a nuclear strike if Ukraine advances into precisely the territory that it is fighting for. And this is but the latest in a long string of very blatant threats from Medvedev and various Russian state media talking heads Medvedev has clearly been positioned as Putin's bad cop, posing Putin as the comparative moderate, a sobering prospect. Everyone tells me he's just a blustering buffoon, Medvedev, but I don't know. He serves at the highest level of power. He's the leader of Putin's ruling party, and he's both the former president and the former prime minister of Russia, of course, in both cases, serving as Putin's beta, or surrogate. And uh, with war now threatened at the very borders of Romania and Poland, both NATO members, I am not very comforted by these dismissals. Seems to me his bluster is being tolerated by the Kremlin for strategic reasons. So, uh, I saw the Oppenheimer movie, I guess having already discussed the controversies around the Barbie movie in our podcast of last month, (laughs) although without having actually seen it, mind you, I felt I should discuss the other summer blockbuster. I certainly hope this movie will help raise awareness about the nuclear threat Because I actually think there is less awareness today of the enormity of what nuclear weapons would mean than there was back in the 80s at the height of the Reagan arms race when I was just coming up as an activist and everyone was scared shitless of nuclear war. Now, there are far fewer warheads today than there were then. About 4,000 as opposed to 40,000 on each side, U.S. and Russia, with a few hundred more in the other seven members of the nuclear club. But as we've noted before, a collective 8,000 and change 
is still more than sufficient to destroy human civilization if they were all used. And with the reduction in the number of warheads, there has been an erosion of awareness of what nuclear weapons mean and how they are qualitatively different from so-called conventional weapons and could potentially mean the end of the human race. And especially as of February 24th, 2022, there is far greater risk that nuclear weapons will actually be used, even than there was in the Reagan era, as Russia is now conducting a land war in Europe and already escalating toward the unthinkable through mounting mass atrocities. So, an all-too-timely movie. And it's actually a pretty good movie by the standards of contemporary Hollywood movies, which is setting the bar pretty low. At least it didn't go at the frenetic pace that has become standard for Hollywood movies today. But as if to compensate for slowing things down a bit, there was this portentous, unrelenting soundtrack underscoring literally the whole damn thing, as if every scene was fraught with meaning and emotion, which was really annoying and distracting. And they had to gratuitously throw in all these digital effects. Every time quantum physics was discussed, they had to switch to these show-offy FX interludes, which conveyed no information and did nothing to advance the story. It was just empty G-wizzery. Now, of course, they had to use effects for the depiction of the actual Trinity Blast, but it would have had more power if they had confined it to that. Less is more. You heard Christopher Nolan? He's the producer. I should say that the movie is based on an Oppenheimer biography, American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin, which I have not read but really want to now. I have read a few other books about the Manhattan Project and the early atomic program, some of which I will mention over the course of this discussion, so I think I am sufficiently fluent in the history to be an informed commentator. I do have some inevitable criticisms of the film beyond the stylistic, as we shall see. Contrary to the assumptions of some who have been commenting on social media without having seen it, the movie does not uncritically glorify J. Robert Oppenheimer by any means, and the film is done with enough subtlety that you can take away your own insights or messages rather than having the producer's message being hammered into your head, which is the mark of a really serious work, to Nolan's credit. And what I take away from it relates very much to what we've been discussing in our um, last two podcasts about artificial intelligence over the past couple of weeks. Borrowing a concept from the very important 1943 essay, The Abolition of Man, by C.S. Lewis, about a point at which a technical progression or advance becomes a Sui generis step, that's Latin for of its own kind, and means something in a new and separate and fundamentally distinct class from what precedes it. 
and I have been upholding the principle that contrary to the reigning dogma of techno-hubris, the hegemonic notion that science should do everything it is in its power to do simply because it is in its power to do it, sometimes there is a point where it is necessary to resist the temptation of that step and draw a line and say, thus far and no further. We will return to this theme. The movie jumps around a lot chronologically because it's basically a series of flashbacks interspersed in Oppenheimer's interrogation during the controversy over his security clearance in 1954, the background of which was the development of the hydrogen bomb, which is, of course, magnitudes times more powerful than the mere atomic bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. As we all know, Oppenheimer, who had objected to the development of the H-bomb, had his security clearance yanked thanks to his rivals exploiting his left-wing leanings, his premature anti-fascism, as you could say, from back in the 30s and early 40s, which left him tainted in the new Cold War atmosphere. And the H-bomb got made under the leadership of Edward Teller, who Oppenheimer had drafted into the Manhattan Project back in 1942. But through this mishmash of flashbacks, you can uh, make out the trajectory of how we got to that ultra-dystopian point. Oppenheimer, played very convincingly by Killian Murphy, I must say, is portrayed as morally conflicted and grappling with the enormity of what's been placed on his shoulders, but also as compromised by his own ambition, at least until the very end, after he's been humbled. But I'm going to trace this trajectory by focusing momentarily on another character, real-life character, who has just a bit part in the film, but a very important one, and comes across to me as the guy with the cleanest hands among the Manhattan Project veterans, Leo Szilard. And I'm going to uh, here flesh out some of the events concerning him that are only fleetingly depicted or alluded to in the movie. Like Teller, the most unfavorable of the whole crew, Szilard was born in Hungary where he had been a socialist activist in his youth and remained a man of the left, more seriously so than Oppenheimer. Having studied in Germany and fled when Hitler came to power, he continued to be aware of the frightening advance of atomic research under the Nazis, and it was actually Zillard who drafted the text of the August 2nd, 1939 letter that was signed by Albert Einstein and sent to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, warning that Germany might develop the atomic bomb and urging the U.S. to launch its own atomic program, which is, of course, what led to the Manhattan Project, formally initiated in 42, which Zillard would be drafted into. 
Now, Oppenheimer, of course, was in charge of the super-secret program to actually build the bomb at the secret town that was built up in the mountains of New Mexico, Los Almos, still the Energy Department's foremost nuclear lab today, while Zillard worked at the University of Chicago Metallurgical Laboratory, headed by Enrico Fermi, and was therefore present when the first self-sustaining atomic chain reaction was achieved in the world's first nuclear reactor, famously under the viewing stands at a University of Chicago ball field on December 2nd, 1942. So there we have the crossing of a critical line. No pun intended. Critical in both the physics sense and the moral sense. The first such crossing in this trajectory, unless you can consider Sillard's letter itself the first, and you can imagine what he was thinking at both moments. What an utter disaster it would be for humanity if the Nazis were to develop the bomb first. That there really was a pressing moral and political imperative to cross that line in spite of the very real and overwhelming dangers. But by then, it was becoming clear that the Nazi atomic program had languished. The military, which had been overseeing it, abandoned its ambition to build a warhead and turned the research back over to civilian leadership, at which time it was greatly downsized. This was the first opportunity to turn back, to stop the trajectory toward the unthinkable, to say, thus far and no further. But of course, that didn't happen. To growing misgivings from Zillard and a small handful of other Manhattan Project members, the movie depicts discussion among some of the reluctant dissidents about the ethics of continuing with the project after VE Day, victory in Europe, May 8th, 1945. That was another opportunity to turn back, but the U.S. was still at war with Japan, whose very rudimentary atomic program, much more limited than the German one, in any case, had similarly been effectively abandoned by that point. And, of course, on July 16th, 1945, the world's first atomic blast was carried out at the Trinity test site in New Mexico within what is now the Army's White Sands Missile Range, certainly the crossing of a very critical line. And at this point, Zillard breaks his silence as the Trinity test was becoming inevitable in the spring of '45. He attempts to express his misgivings to Washington and actually has a personal exchange with James F. Burns, then director of the Office of War Mobilization and very shortly to be appointed Secretary of State, who condescended to Zillard and deep-sixed the memo that he had prepared for President Truman. We will have more on this episode shortly, but to continue with the chronology... The very day after the Trinity Blast, July 17th, 
Zillard drafts a petition to Truman, urging him, at least, to consider the disastrous consequences of using the atomic bomb on Japan. The petition stopped just short of explicitly calling on Truman not to do it, although it did express opposition to it unless Japan first, quote, were given an opportunity to surrender, end quote. It was signed by some 70 researchers, technicians, and affiliates of the Manhattan Project, mostly from Chicago and the uranium processing plant that had been established at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I don't believe any from Los Almos signed. But Burns and Leslie Groves, the Army general in overall charge of the Manhattan Project, very well played in the movie by Matt Damon, effectively blocked the petition from reaching Truman's desk. And he probably never saw it, at least not until after the war. There was also the Frank Report, F-R-A-N-C-K, produced by Zillard and some of his colleagues from the University of Chicago, issued in June of 1945, which called for a demonstration blast to be carried out in an uninhabited area, quote-unquote, either of Japan or by bringing a delegation of Japanese officials to New Mexico to witness. This was also rejected. And, of course, a uranium bomb was dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th, and then a plutonium bomb on Nagasaki three days later, August 9th. In a public statement issued on August 9th, Truman lied, saying, quote, The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. That was because we wished in this first attack to avoid, insofar as possible, the killing of civilians, end quote. Not so. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were both cities. Some 200,000 were killed in both blasts taken together, overwhelmingly civilians, although it is difficult to get a precise figure even now, and that's not counting many who died years later of cancers. Obviously, the intent had been to make a demonstration indeed, but precisely of mass murder of human beings. The film basically skirts the argument about the ethics or necessity of dropping the bomb on Japan. Both sides, as it were, are briefly represented, but in very cursory manner. So we're going to go a little deeper here. And the response that we've been hearing for 78 years now to any dissent from the dogma that dropping the bomb was necessary has been, if you had been a GI being shipped out for the invasion of Japan, you'd have been happy about the bomb. Well, that's undoubtedly true. I mean, we've all seen the famous shots of jubilation in Times Square on VJ Day and so on, but that doesn't end the conversation. Making that point to shut down the discussion is cynical 
and emotionally manipulative, especially when all those GIs, with perhaps a few rare exceptions, are today long dead anyway. And I'll also point out that the way it is usually phrased is a little distorted and misleading, because the actual invasion of Japan's home islands, codenamed Operation Downfall, was not scheduled to begin until October. Now, the warfare over the Pacific Islands was absolutely horrific, and I have no desire to minimize it. I'm just calling for some accuracy here. So let's go over some of the actual relevant facts that you will never hear from the apologists of using the bomb. On July 26th, at the close of the Potsdam Conference, the Allies jointly issued the Potsdam Declaration demanding Japan's unconditional surrender, quote-unquote, and warning of prompt and utter destruction, quote-unquote, if it failed to comply, hinting at, but by no means making explicit, what was to come. And although it was not announced publicly, the Soviets started preparing from this point to enter the war against Japan, in which they had up to that point been neutral. This despite the fact that, as we shall see, the Japanese were actually putting out diplomatic feelers to the Soviets at precisely this time to broker a ceasefire with the Americans. A private investigation commissioned by Emperor Hirohito had reported to Kim on June 12th that the war effort was draining the nation dry. Steel production had fallen to less than one-fifth pre-war output. Hirohito concluded that the generals who favored holding out to the bitter end were living in a fantasy, and he devised a strategy to enlist the Soviets as mediators to negotiate peace. On July 12th, Japanese Foreign Minister Shigenori Togo wired his ambassador in Moscow, instructing him to try to see Foreign Minister Molotov before the Potsdam Conference to, quote, lay before him the emperor's strong desire to secure a termination of the war. Unconditional surrender is the only obstacle to peace, end quote. The cable was intercepted by the U.S., which had cracked the Japanese code, and hailed by Navy Secretary James Forrestal, writing in his diary as, quote, real evidence of a Japanese desire to get out of the war, end quote. This was also the view of William J. Wild Bill Donovan, director of the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, wartime predecessor of the CIA, who on May 12th had sent a memo to Truman reporting that, quote, Shuniches Kase, the Japanese minister to Switzerland, expressed a wish to help arrange for a cessation of hostilities. One of the few provisions the Japanese would insist upon would be the retention of the emperor, end quote, which, of course, they got anyway. On May 31st, Donovan sent another memo to Truman, 
reporting that sources quoted a Japanese diplomat in neutral Portugal as saying, quote, that the Japanese are ready to cease hostilities, provided they are allowed to retain possession of their home islands. On May 19th, the OSS representative reported that the diplomat had repeated his desire to talk, end quote. When General Eisenhower, Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, was told by Secretary of War Henry Stimson at Potsdam that atomic weapons were to be used against Japan, Eisenhower, in his own words, quote, voiced to him my grave misgivings, first on the basis of my belief that Japan was already defeated and that dropping the bomb was completely unnecessary, and secondly, because I thought that our country should avoid shocking world opinion by the use of a weapon whose employment was, I thought, no longer mandatory as a measure to save American lives. Japan was, at that very moment, seeking some way to surrender with a minimum loss of face. It wasn't necessary to hit them with that awful thing. End quote. This verbatim text is what Eisenhower would tell his biographer, Stephen Ambrose, years later. The name of the book is Eisenhower, Soldier and President, General Douglas MacArthur, commander of the Southwest Pacific Theater, was appalled, his word, when he learned of Truman's plans for Hiroshima and reacted with an 11th hour Manila press conference on the morning of August 6th, where he told reporters that the imminent Russian entry meant, quote, the war may end sooner than some think. End quote. Two weeks earlier, he had told his air commander, Lieutenant George Kenney, he believed Japan would surrender, quote, by September 1st at the latest, and perhaps even sooner, end quote. This from MacArthur's biography, American Caesar, by William Manchester. Also in the prelude to Potsdam, Leo Zillard was meeting with James Byrne to express his misgivings about the use of the bomb. According to Zillard's own memories, Burns told the worried scientist that bombing Japan would intimidate the Russians and make them a more manageable, quote-unquote, in Eastern Europe. You come from Hungary, Burns told Zillard. You wouldn't want Russia to stay in Hungary indefinitely, end quote. Zillard later said that with a post-war nuclear arms race looming, he was, quote, not disposed at this point to worry about Hungary, end quote. British scientist PMS Blackett, who would win the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1948, wrote that Burns was, quote, most anxious to get the Japanese affair over with before the Russians got in, end quote. New York Times military analyst Hansen Baldwin wrote shortly after VJ Day, quote, The enemy, in a military sense, was in a hopeless strategic position by the time the Potsdam demand for unconditional surrender was made on July 26th. Such then was the situation 
when we wiped out Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Need we have done it? No one can, of course, be positive, but the answer is almost certainly negative. End quote. The U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey, formed by the War Department to study the results of aerial attacks, basing its findings on hundreds of interviews with Japanese civilians and military leaders, reported shortly after the war that by the end of 1945, quote, Japan would have surrendered even if the atomic bombs had not been dropped, even if Russia had not entered the war, and even if no invasion had been planned or contemplated, end quote. These facts and quotations, not from uh, the Eisenhower and MacArthur biographies, are from the books Day One, Before Hiroshima and After by Peter Wyden, and The Day After World War III by Ed Zuckerman. And, of course, the Soviets entered the war on August 7th, the day after Hiroshima, invading Japanese-occupied Manchuria. But by then, the war was effectively over, and the Japanese announced surrender on August 15th and formally surrendered on September 2nd with the signing of documents on the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. And the quotes here from uh, James F. Burns and PMS Blackett, I think, shed a lot of light on the whole question of motive. Apart from the rhetoric about wanting to save lives, especially American lives, Truman's motives in dropping the bomb, I think we can be pretty clear, was to make a demonstration to the Soviets. And by dropping the first bomb the very day before they were to enter the war against Japan, to effectively keep the Soviets from playing a significant role in the war's endgame. So Asia and the Pacific would not have to be shared with them as Europe had been. Truman was essentially using 200,000 Japanese bodies to play politics with Moscow. Now, Oppenheimer's motives were obviously different. He was in no official decision-making capacity over how the bomb would be used, but he was consulted on the question and at least seems to have raised no objections to its use on Hiroshima. And certainly he had no interest in intimidating the Soviets. I think in his case, it really was technological hubris. There is a point at which to anthropomorphize somewhat, the technology takes on a life of its own, and we become its servants and instruments instead of the other way round. And this was summed up more eloquently than I can by the famous British-American theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson, Another one who had not actually been in the Manhattan Project, but was adjacent to it and probably aware of its existence. He was working as a civilian scientist for the Royal Air Force Bomber Command during the war. And after the war, he would work at Cornell University with Hans Bethe 
who had been a key figure in the Manhattan Project and was at Los Alamos and at the Trinity Blast. And when he was interviewed for the excellent 1980 documentary, The Day After Trinity, which I just watched in preparation for this podcast, Dyson addressed the seduction of technological power, quote, I felt it myself, the glitter of nuclear weapons. It is irresistible, if you come to them as a scientist, to feel it's there in your hands, to release the energy that fuels the stars, to let it do your bidding, and to perform these miracles, to lift a million tons of rock into the sky. It is something that gives people an illusion of illimitable power, and it is in some ways responsible for all our troubles, I would say. This what you might call technological arrogance that overcomes people when they see what they can do with their minds, end quote. And this, of course, brings to mind Oppenheimer's famous quote from the Bhagavad Gita, spoken by the Hindu god Vishnu, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, which he is widely believed to have said at the Trinity Blast, which, in fact, he did not. The movie accurately depicts the scientists saying completely banal and quotidian things to each other in the immediate aftermath of the blast, like, it worked, quote unquote. But the movie has Oppenheimer thinking it in this kind of disembodied voice, and he did tell an interviewer years later that he had been thinking it, and you can see him actually speak that line of verse to the camera in the Day After Trinity documentary. But I would argue that Oppenheimer himself, far from elevated to a god, was a mere instrument by that point. That the process, the trajectory, technological and bureaucratic, had taken on a life of its own, leading inexorably toward the act of mass extermination that took place on August 6th, even apart from political and strategic considerations. In the aftermath, there was once more the opportunity to say, thus far and no further. And Oppenheimer, now appointed by Truman to a board of consultants on atomic energy policy, advocated with Zillard for placing all warheads and the atomic program generally under international control, the so-called Baruch Plan. But of course, this went against Cold War exigencies on both sides, U.S. and Soviet alike. And then he got into deeper trouble with his opposition to the development of the hydrogen bomb and his open split with its mastermind, Edward Teller, who, of course prevailed over his former superior and developed the first H-bomb in 1952, followed by the Soviets in 1955. Teller, in 1954, betrayed Oppenheimer, testifying against him at the security clearance hearing that was called, 
dredging up his left-wing past to use against him in the paranoid Cold War climate. His security clearance was yanked, and the hearing is the episode through which the story is told in the movie. Oppenheimer would largely retreat from public life until his death in 1967. Teller, forever known as the father of the H-bomb, would go on to co-found and lead Livermore National Laboratory for the Atomic Energy Commission, today the Energy Department, was a key advocate of Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, the so-called Star Wars program, and remained an intransigent booster of more and bigger nukes until his death in 2003. Now, there's an innocent and a cynical way to view Oppenheimer's opposition to the H-bomb. You could view it cynically that he remained a Soviet sympathist and had been okay with developing an atomic bomb to counter Japan and Axis power, but not the H-bomb to counter the USSR. Or, more innocently, you can argue that he understood the exponential difference in destructive power that the H-bomb represented, and as the film implies, had belatedly, after Hiroshima, developed a greater conscience about the horrific reality of what he had created. Or it may have been some admixture of these two things. They aren't mutually exclusive. But it doesn't much matter, because he was right either way. He was taking the correct position, thus far and no further, regardless of his motives. And if he had prevailed, and if the Soviets, deprived of the justification that Teller and the U.S. provided them, had similarly seized their hydrogen bomb research, we would not have had the near misses when world Holocaust was narrowly avoided, most famously in October 1962, but there were others, and we would not be poised at the brink of total destruction today. The movie has been criticized for not actually depicting Hiroshima and Nagasaki victims. There are these sort of fantasy sequences in which Oppenheimer imagines the people around him being incinerated and their skin melting on their faces, all done digitally, of course. But in the scene where he is himself watching film footage from the Hiroshima aftermath, the camera doesn't show the screen. It instead focuses on his, Oppenheimer's, facial reaction. Some of that footage is actually shown in the Day After Trinity documentary, and as you can imagine, it is much more powerful and difficult to watch, even for being in grainy black and white. And there were other victims who were not mentioned in the movie at all, the so-called downwinders, civilians some 12 miles away from the Trinity blast, who would be irradiated and die of cancer years later, and there would, of course, be many more downwinders, both in Nevada, where a permanent test site was established after the war, and in the Pacific, 
where the H-bomb was tested, especially the Marshall Islanders. The Radiation Exposure Compensation Act of 1990 only applies to the Nevada downwinders, not those in New Mexico or the Pacific. There were the cancer spikes among local residents at Oak Ridge, Tennessee and Hanford, Washington, which were both established to produce atomic fuel for the Manhattan Project and continued to function for many years to come. And the victims of other countries' nuclear programs, such as the Kazakhs at the Soviet test site in Semipalatinsk, and the Navajo and other indigenous peoples whose lands were irradiated by uranium mining. The list goes on and on. And here we are, August 2023. Not only threatened with thermonuclear destruction, which could literally come any day now, with Russian rockets falling on the Danube River, the border between Ukraine and NATO member Romania, and the Wagner Group and Belarus openly threatening to invade NATO member Poland, but we are also facing the same dilemmas that Oppenheimer and Zillard faced in 1945 with the development of artificial intelligence. So despite the movie's flaws, I do hope that it sparks a reckoning that can hopefully contribute to humanity taking at least a small step back from the brink. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.